May this memorial commemorate the lives and service of all who took part in the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. My job is to make a fitting tribute to all those people who served both military and civilian. Was it worth it? Actually, that's the wrong question. Did I do my duty? My view is, I think we did better than that. More than a quarter of a century ago, British forces landed in the Middle East. It was the start of three unlinked but devastating wars in which 682 British service personnel perished. And today, British troops are still in Afghanistan and Iraq. This morning, the Queen unveiled the Iraq and Afghanistan Memorial in London. The sculpture commemorates all those involved in the conflicts, both military and civilian, from 1990 to 2015. Paul Osborne has been looking back at the ceremony. I dedicate this memorial in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Cambridge all gathered in horse guards at the drumhead service. Prince Harry, who served two tours in Afghanistan, read from the Bible. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build. The monument is made up of two large stones, one for Iraq, the other Afghanistan, linked by a giant bronze medallion. Sculptor Paul Day. My job is to make a fitting tribute to all those people who served both military and civilian and I wanted to make a strong and powerful work of art that was of its time but it has one jagged edge the rough outer edge is to represent one the the harshness and hostility of the environment but it's also to suggest that there hasn't been a clean and tidy conclusion to events in Iraq and Afghanistan but they are ongoing stories by design, the names of the 682 lost in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are not on the memorial. The right Reverend Nigel Stock, Bishop to the Forces. May this memorial commemorate the lives and service of all who took part in the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, as we acknowledge their sacrifice and dedication. Among the two and a half thousand attending today, John Major and Tony Blair, the Prime Ministers who committed British forces to action in Iraq and Afghanistan. Victoria Whitaker, an MOD civilian, was deployed to Afghanistan in 2014 and her father served in the first Gulf War. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Queen said it was with pride that the contributions of all those who served are honoured 
by a memorial which will sit close to the River Thames, marking a commitment to two troubled regions that stretched over 25 years and continues to this day. was Paul Osborne reporting. Well, I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, take us back to 1990. Remind us how it all began. In fact, you can go back, if you like, to 1830s. Because for the British, Afghanistan, and they're quite separate things, Afghanistan and what was happening with the other, quite separate. The British, um, Afghanistan used to be part of India, and the British owned India. And they owned India until 1947. And so it was a concentration of having fought six wars in Afghanistan. We thought we knew about it. And then we had taken part in an operation with people called students. And students, the word, the Pashtun word is, is Taliban. And we had tried to get these people, the Afghans, to fight the Soviet Union troops that had invaded on December the 19th, 1979. So we had actually got... Taliban, if you like, fighting on our behalf to get rid of the Russians. Having done that, we then got involved with what was going on there because everybody started to turn the other way. They became terrorists as far as we were concerned. They were no longer on our side. And so when you got something like, and it wasn't just 9-11, when you got something like 9-11 happening, it was a battleground which we believe was the only battleground that we could probably counter Al-Qaeda, which had moved into that area. Now, what else was happening at the same time, which was totally separate, in, 19, in, in 1990, um, Saddam Hussein, the then leader of Iraq, decided that he was going to invade Kuwait. Why would he invade Kuwait? Because he believed it was part of Iraq. It also had the, be- had the best oil fields in the whole of, of the Gulf states, and he planned to move in on Saudi Arabia. We had uh, and still have defence commitments with Kuwait, and there was a coalition of forces led by America that went to kick him out of, of, of Kuwait. The United Nations got involved, and the United Nations says, all you can do is kick him out. You mustn't go in and chase after him. The next thing that happened was that Saddam became, we became suspicious that Saddam was building perhaps even nuclear weapons, but certainly chemical weapons. These turned out to be not weapons of mass destruction, but weapons of mass disappearance. They Mm. did not exist. And that led to the 2002 and eventually the 2003 war. And turning back again to to the first Gulf War, you mentioned it was an American-led operation, Operation Desert Shield, subsequently Operation Desert Storm. How significant was that at the time? Um, in a strange way for the British, it was extraordinarily significant. We, we, We wanted to get involved. The Americans were going to sort of go in and kick uh, and kick the, the the Iraqis out of 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 Kuwait. However, the British were looking for a war in some ways. They didn't want to go to fight a war, but there was a war taking part. We had to get in on that war because the the certainly the defence ministry or the or the chiefs of staff were desperately worried that the treasury was starting to look at the. British Army, for example, and say, why have you got all these tanks? Why are we spending all this money? You never do anything with it. And so the the British said to the Americans, listen, we want to be in on this. And so we went scavenging around Europe, trying to find bit parts for British tanks so that we could cobble them together Hmm. to get to the Gulf. 
uh, along with uh, along with the Royal Navy, HMS Gloucester, and to have in almost to have a role to join the war in in, in order to justify and our a, existence. A coalition of the willing was was born or reborn, if you like. The uh, whole concept was that you would no longer. This was the time when you realised that unless as what the Treasury was saying, we've no Cold War, why have we got all this gear? And we were actually saying the future of war, and this is the end of the Cold War, you don't have a Cold War anymore, you have what's called an asymmetric mm. war. You don't know how it's going to work. And we we need the Treasury backing so that we can take part in it because with America, and if we don't take part with America, the Americans would dump us from their best friends list. Well, that war, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, would be fought until February the 28th, 1991, with Iraq pulling out of Kuwait and formally accepting ceasefire terms on April the 6th. The US suffered around 300 killed and Britain 47, while Kuwait saw 1,000 deaths and 600 people missing. Uh, Christopher, remind us what happened in the years intervening between the Gulf War and the Iraq War specifically. Well, this was the development uh, of, a, of, of a coalition uh, when, after the Kuwait War, um, it, there was a confrontation between a lot of America's allies and America itself within its own, within, within the, uh, the Pentagon and the White House, which had all changed hands by them. The United Nations said, your resolution, the resolution which allows you to go to war does not allow you to go and chase Saddam's forces up into Iraq. It just allows you to kick out the forces from Kuwait, and that, that being done. But it was at the same time that Saddam, a Sunni, with a Sunni regime largely coming from Tikrit, started to decimate almost parts of, of, the, uh, of, of, of Iraq, which were Shias. And we suspected, because we were getting intelligence from there, a lot of it, Unreliable intelligence, very unreliable intelligence, put about by people who had a grope against against Saddam, that he was making chemical weapons, etc. And then there was false uh, information that was coming out to such an extent that MI6, our own people, got it completely wrong. And so it was all building towards a war, and it was really a question of when it would happen rather than should it happen. And along came George Bush mm -hmm. and said, they're not doing that to us, we'll get, we're going, and we joined in on the end. And, and two BFBS radio reporters were embedded with British ground troops. Let's listen back to their early dispatches. Time is running out for Saddam Hussein. As President Bush calls for Saddam to quit Iraq or face war, Britain's armed forces have been making final preparations for the battle to come. Brigadier Graham Binns is confident in the preparedness of the 5,000 members of his 7th Armoured Brigade, but he's under no illusions about the risk. We're going to war, uh, and war will not be pretty, uh, and it will be dangerous. The mood here is changing. Following three-hour drills in preparation for a chemical or biological attack, word came further steps were to be taken. From now on, everyone here must wear body armour and carry helmets and protective clothing with them. Over the past few days, the militia had fired rocket-propelled grenades and semi-automatic weapons. Now all vehicles had to be escorted by armoured ones. But now the desert rats were to act. We waited for several hours, three kilometres from the Iraqi border, before being given the signal to move north. The warrior I'm travelling in came through the breach just after midday UK time. The battle group met with little resistance. The gunners in the warrior's turret reported seeing Iraqi civilians waving, smiling and giving thumbs up as the armoured vehicles rolled in. 
You heard first from Rory Higgins and then Susie Ferguson reporting for BFBS in March 2003. Uh, Christopher, uh, tell us a bit about public opinion, the difference between the Gulf War and the Iraq War of 2003. Right. Um, the 1991 operation to get Saddam out of Kuwait no problems for for the military or anybody else of the coalition. It was seen as a very simple thing. We were a big coalition against a, a, a second 11 local army and that you would go into Kuwait and you'd just kick them out and it wouldn't take long to do and everybody put the charts up. Public opinion, okay. However, we then got to 2002 and there are lots of things picked up. One, there was a lot of public opinion against Tony Blair personally. There was a lot of public opinion against uh, George Bush uh, and in the United Kingdom. It was as if the man didn't know what he was talking about but was going to go to walk any, war anyway and he started strutting around in a sort of uh, some sort of leather top with the, with the wings on which he never earned, etc. And so public opinion in 2002 coincided with uh, being against the government but going, coincided with one of the biggest anti-government demonstrations which wasn't about the Gulf War it was about the hunting of foxes with dogs. And so they joined forces and a million people marched through London who were against banning fox hunting, but also against going after Saddam Hussein. And as the people about the fox things, I don't know. But the people who said we shouldn't be going on the evidence that you're, you're giving us at the moment per, tr- turned out to be perfectly right. It was, a lot of it was simply false and other, a lot okay. of other stuff was made up. Well, looking at today's uh, memorial, how important is it that we remember these conflicts and was it all worth it? Well, Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb was appointed General Officer Commanding 3rd UK Mechanised Division in the summer of 2003, the start of the Iraq War. He went on to become Commander Field Army and on retirement headed to Afghanistan at the direct request of US General David Petraeus to join join his team there. He's spoken to James Hurst. The assumption is that, you know, we remember, we take the 11th hour, 11th month, you know, which we do every year from the Great War. You know, we remember, we tend to remember those who have given their full measure, given their lives. Um, Everyone is affected by conflict, war. You know, Hobbes' world is an unforgiving space and everyone carries with them those experiences uh, for some troubling, for many like me, in fact, what I call just a case of life's interesting experience. But, but, but the act of remembrance is a worthy one of a nation that sends people in all guises, both in uniform and those not in uniform um, to uh, to these troubled spaces to make a difference, um, and and therefore recalling that, remembering that, not wasting too much time on on challenging was it right, was it wrong, but the mere act that they did their duty is something which I think is appropriate. And of course. Although this memorial is to to those who who went and served, um, there are others, in a way, who who gave in terms of the families who remained behind. Yes, of course. And, 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 you know, again, you know, we rightly remember those whose partners gave the full measure, um, who didn't return. Um, We note 
those who return damaged. You know, I'm a trustee with walking with the wounded. Um, uh, but at the same time, that there are those at home who just had to put up every day in every way with the anguish, the uncertainties which go with conflict and war of uh, hearing something. Was my husband or my partner, my wife involved in that? Were they around? You know, I know they're in whatever it may be, Kabul, Basra, Baghdad. Um, um, have they been damaged? Have they been hurt? And, of course, your imagination quickly fills the space of, of the worst possible outcomes rather than actually the likelihood is that they're fine. There is always the temptation to look back and ask, was it worth it? How do you feel when you hear that, that question yeah, now yeah. about Iraq and Afghanistan? People, I mean, for me as a, as a, as a soldier, you know, I, I, I still, you know, I live by those simple old ideals of duty, service, sacrifice. The answer is I was a volunteer. I joined the army at 17, I went to Santos did 38 years of service, wouldn't have had it any other way. But I chose that life. I chose that duty. I chose that responsibility. So, so the question is, was it worth it? Actually, in many ways, is did I do my duty? Did the British Army, did the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, did, in fact, those that served in these spaces, did they do their duty? That's the question, in many ways, that, that is often forgotten while people say, was it worth it? Actually, in fact, you know, I think as Kipling said, triumph and disaster, those two imposters won the same. You know, that, that it, it, we will see the passage of time. Have we made a difference in both Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes. Um, if I look at levels of education, you know, the first thing I remember going down into, um, uh, into the Khyber Pass, you know, C-130, landing there, you know, of, of watching this sort of horde of mujahideen then sort of coming to the back of the, the aircraft, what we had taken down was education, schools in a box. That's what they wanted. And so you have women, you have children, you have people who have been given an opportunity. Is everything well? No, of course it's not. Troubled spaces, troubled times. Uh, but the truth is that has it changed? Yes, it has. Was it worth it? Actually, that's the wrong question. Did I do my duty? Did those, that, in fact, that went there do their duty as well as they could in difficult and challenging circumstances? My view is I think we did better than that. Well, that was Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb speaking to James Hurst. So that was the soldier's view. Let's now hear from the ambassador. Sir William Patey, a former British ambassador to Iraq and later Afghanistan. He was also head of the Middle East Department between 1999 and 2002 at the Foreign Office, and he joins us now from Westminster. Good to speak to you today. And um, what do you think of a memorial of this kind, dedicated to three conflicts? Can they be put together in this way? Well, they were part of an era uh, of intervention. Uh, I think what is uh, unique about this memorial is the. Um, the fact that it covers the civilians who were part of the conflict as well. Uh, many of my colleagues, uh, civil servants, uh, other other civilians, uh, it was a very unique conflict. Um, and I think the importance of Memorial today is that both the, the, the military and the civilians uh, who served 
um, were recognised. I thought that was uh, very important. Unique, you say, um, as a civilian, how does it feel? How does it feel to be part of that and get that recognition? Well, it's not so much uh, you know the recognition for for me. I've got plenty of recognition for as ambassador. It's uh, for many th- uh, hundreds of other people who don't always get the recognition. I think it's important to them. My uh, my my assistant in Afghanistan was there today. She uh, she she more junior official doesn't always get the recognition, but it's very important that she was there and uh, that people know. As as uh, your previous speaker uh, Graham Lamb said, they 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 know they did their duty and that that was that was recognised. Yes, and you'd say it was an era of conflict, an era of interventions. Is there anything that links them? Well, they they were wars of choice, if you like. Uh, we chose to go to a war in Afghanistan to get rid of the Taliban because they were um, hosting uh, Al Qaeda, who'd uh, who'd attacked the United States and other countries. So it, it was a war of choice, as was as was Iraq. Uh, we, the there was no direct threat uh, to to the United Kingdom in any of these conflicts. Clearly, indirect threats uh, from from terrorism and from uh, threats to our, our allies. So uh, I think both those conflicts were um, uh, wars of choice. Uh, Iraq, I think, was more uh, was more um, controversial than Afghanistan. I don't think there was the same opposition to going into Afghanistan than there was in Iraq. But they were similar conflicts in that we uh, overthrew the established uh, um, the army, the government at the time, and we were left with a task of helping them rebuild. So they were both war fighting and nation building at the same time. What do you think of the timing of this memorial? Because operations are still going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not over, is it? No, uh, certainly not. I suppose you could argue it's um, it's over in terms of combat, a direct combat role for our troops. I mean, we still have forces in 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 Iraq and Afghanistan training training Iraqis and Afghans. Uh, I suppose it's 25 years since the first Gulf War, so um, I don't suppose there's any great uh, etiquette on how long you have to wait to um, uh, to remember people, but. Uh, uh, I, I suppose it's worth remembering them while most of them are still alive. Mm, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this. Christopher, I'm just thinking um, about the time, the period when we're really talking about this starting the 1990s, maybe. Um, I've always thought that the Cold War, if it did have a date to end, was probably something like 1986, Reykjavik, the Gorbachev. Uh, conference with Mr. Reagan, President Reagan, when we started talking, or they started talking about big imaginations of zero-zero options on weapons and nuclear weapons, etc. But what it did, that period that led led up to it, um, which was interrupted, yes, by 9-11, was a sense, I think, by an awful lot of people right around the globe that things had changed. There was no longer that sort of Cold War sort of concept and that you could get into this new thing that people talked about, which wasn't actually that new, but the new thing, which is asymmetrical warfare, that you might have to go and try with a coalition of the winning, of the willing, uh, to actually change life. People were more willing and not so frightened uh, uh, of the world. And then suddenly we get into these three wars, which when you put them together, 
and how long they went on, like longer than, for, for example, the, the Second World War, Afghanistan. Um, I don't mean to say this in a, in, a, in a bad mood, but not many dead, not many great confrontations with uh, exotic weaponry or whatever, and almost making it understandable that you do go to war far more than what was there before, and that was that you feared that you might have to. So, William Patey, do you think that now we have reached a turning point in, in the way, in the circumstance, our attitudes towards going to war? Well, I fear that there may be a, an unwillingness uh, to intervene. Um, nobody wants to go to war, and I don't think we'll engage in conflicts of that nature again uh, as a matter of choice. But it would be wrong, I think, if the experience of Afghanistan and Iraq were to lead us to think that there was nothing we could do anywhere. Uh, and there will be conflicts in the world where we have a serious national interest in which uh, limited intervention or limited support for uh, forces on the ground um, could have an impact in moving those uh, situations in the right direction. And I hope that our uh, bruised experience in Iraq and Afghanistan will not mean that we can never intervene anywhere again. It's very, very difficult. Uh, I think some of the rules have changed. The, the Prime Minister over Syria made it clear that military intervention without parliamentary approval uh, was was not was no longer possible. So if you think about if you think about the interventions in Sierra Leone, which were very successful mm. uh, uh, in terms of restoring democracy and ending a terrible situation, that was done without parliamentary approval, very limited operation, but was hugely successful. Sir William Patey, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today. That was Sir William Patey, a former British ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so we've heard the commander's view, the ambassador's view. Now let's get the veteran's view. Cassidy Little served with the Royal Marines in Afghanistan on his second tour in 2011. He was blown up by an IED, which cost him part of his leg. Three friends were killed. Cassidy, good to speak to you today. What, what are your feelings when you, you see this unveiling today of this memorial? I've got mixed feelings. I mean, I, I think everybody should have mixed feelings about it because you're not thinking that all the way through if you don't. Um, you know, I think it's the whole lest we forget thing is, is really important to me. And I think it's really important that there is something in place for future generations to stop and look at and, and, and get their head around what myself, my friends, my colleagues, my brothers and sisters, what the sacrifice was, mm -hmm. uh, whether we wanted it, volunteered for it or didn't. You know, I think that's really important. But at the same time, as it was just brought up, I mean, this is three different conflicts. I mean, why are we, why are we, why do we have one situation for three different conflicts? Why don't we have three? Is it, if there's a legitimate reason behind that and somebody comes to me and says, well, we make that connection with bump, 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 then okay, great. But if it's down to budget or space, I, I don't know. I don't know. It confuses me. Christopher, your thoughts on that? Um, I... Perfectly. I really take that on. Um, you know, why do you have uh, a big memorial and there'll not be another one, say, to Afghanistan, to whatever? I also wonder um, whether, whether we've got the memorial too soon. 
I think sometimes you have to reflect. But then, as you heard the ambassador saying, there's no particular time that's right for a memorial. That you, yes, there is. Yes, well, there is. I mean, you take what's happening at the moment. There is, a, at last, there's to be a memorial hmm. for the D-Day landings, 19, uh, you know, sort of 1944. And we have reflected yeah. on what that actually means. Ironically, it's, it's coming at a time when the Britain is actually pulling out of Europe. Well, interestingly, I, I think... I mean, we don't want to wait too long because we need the generations that are coming through right now, right now, the schools, right now, the children that I talk to in schools, they need to know what's happened in order to make sure that they still have an education system there in place. Like, they need to understand the sacrifices that are made. But at the same time, like you said earlier, there are still people in Afghanistan, still people in Iraq. There are still people, I mean, there are still people, say, behind bars for court cases involving those times that it's still up in the air. So maybe it's a little bit too soon, but I, I don't want to say that we should be waiting 100 years from now to put something up, to put three memorials up for three different conflicts. Casty Little, good to hear from you. Thank you very much. And we'll leave you today with some of the highlights from today's ceremony in which the contribution by both the military and civilians in the Gulf War, the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan were commemorated. Thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. I dedicate dedicate this this memorial memorial in the the name name of the the Father, Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. There hasn't been a clean and tidy conclusion to events in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they are ongoing stories. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is a time for everything, a time to kill and a time to heal. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.